listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today, it is Saturday, the 22nd of January in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom from Virginia, USA, by retired diplomat and professor, Dr. C. Kenneth Quinones, to talk about, uh, amongst other things, the Yongbyon nuclear reactor, and his many experiences with and in North Korea. Before we get started, I have three brief messages to all listeners. Please leave a review of this podcast so that more people can find out about us and listen to us for the first time and hopefully keep listening to us. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription where you will, your subscription will fund the excellent work done by my journalist colleagues every day in the stories that they write. Thirdly, check out nknews.org shop for our North Korea leadership chart art posters, and much more. As always, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, you can email us at podcast at nknews.org. You can also follow me on the Twitter at JackoZ. That's J-A-C-C-O-Z-E-D or Z-E-D, if you like the American pronunciation. Okay, so to introduce my guest today, Professor C. Kenneth Quinones is a retired diplomat and professor who was the State Department's North Korea Affairs Officer and a de facto liaison in the DPRK uh, between 1992 and 1997. This involved him in the negotiation and implementation of the agreed framework, which was the first US DPRK agreement which froze Pyongyang's nuclear program back in 1994. He has published numerous academic articles and three books about US DPRK relations, his most recent book, Imperial Japan's Allied Prisoners of War in the South Pacific, is about the several thousand persons that Imperial Japan imprisoned in the South Pacific in World War II. You can find out more at Dr. Kunyones' website, which is cqinones.com. We will, of course, put the link on the show notes of this episode, so you can go there and click very easily. Dr. Kunyones, welcome on the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. You've been in Northeast Asia, if not in Korea, at different times in your life, wearing different hats as a soldier, as a scholar, as a diplomat. Uh, tell us how those different roles brought out different parts of Kenneth Quinones and how they helped you experience and learn about Asia in different ways. Uh, yes. Well, to begin with, my first encounters as a U.S. soldier introduced me to people of Japan and Korea. The first thing I realized is that they basically are the same as anyone you would encounter. Culture varies, but uh, beyond that, there is no fundamental difference. Uh, I looked into the culture, studied the languages, and lived with the people, which gave me a great deal of positive understanding of the situation. The longer I stayed, I is eventually ended up living in South Korea over 10 years and in, mm -hmm. and in uh, Japan 11 years. And what that did for me was to also understand the limits of America's engagement with the realities of North Korea, China, and so forth. Mm. And then, you, uh, yeah, you said, so you started off, at, first of all, as a soldier, you later on became a diplomat, and then later on again as a scholar. Do you engage with the countries in, in different ways, depending on, you know, what, what your role is, what, what kind of hat you're wearing, or is it? You know, is there a uniformity throughout? Uh, no, that's a very good question. Initially, as a soldier, I engaged with people who tended to come from a lower economic uh, class, mm. less educated, and so forth. Fortunately, I was introduced to better educated uh, people. And then over the years, once I transitioned from a soldier to first a scholar, mm. It introduced me to a whole different people in Northeast Asia. And then finally, as a diplomat, I had to deal with people of all levels, uh, right. um, particularly in North and South Korea. Yes, I can imagine that uh, Yeah, uh, your different jobs brought you into contact with very different uh, rungs of society in, in all the different countries that you acted in. Could you give us a brief thumbnail sketch of your specific involvement with North Korea from 1992 through to 2010? That was an 18-year an stretch. Uh, yes. Basically, I, I ended up living a total of approximately six or seven months in North Korea, uh, spread over the uh, period of time, 
ranging from one to two months. Other visits were short, one week.、Mm-hmm. I also was able to travel extensively throughout Northeast Asia,、uh, across North Korea. Right.、Uh, from 1992 to 1994, you were directly involved in、uh, setting up and participating in the negotiations that led to the 1994 Agreed Framework. We've had your former State Department colleagues, Ambassadors Joseph Detrani and Robert Gallucci, on the podcast.、Uh, that's for our listeners back way back in episodes 58 and 85,、uh, respectively. So we have heard a little bit about the framework、uh, and how that came about. But as you hinted at just before, you've had the unusual distinction of being one of the very first Americans. To voluntarily live for long stretches of time in North Korea back in the in the 1990s, and that was during quite a, a tumultuous time, not just in North Korea-U.S. relations, but also within North Korea internally.、Uh, when it was that period known in North Korea as the arduous march, right, the、uh, the, the famine that was taking place in the mid 1990s,、uh, and you were, as I understand it, then the de facto liaison officer between the U.S. and DPRK. Governments, is that correct?、Uh, yes, I began essentially in September 1992, when I was asked to go to New York and、uh, meet with the North Korean delegation, including the Foreign Minister.、Mm-hmm. I was first U.S. diplomat allowed to do so, and then as my contact with the North Koreans increased and grew, I found one of the key challenges was to maintain balance. Between the diplomats in South and those in the North of、uh, Korea, and that proved to be quite a daunting task. Now, was that the the diplomats of the two Koreas who were present in New York at the United Nations, or the South Koreans in Washington D.C. and the North Koreans in New York? I mean, how how did that work out?、Uh, yes, I had to deal with the North Koreans in New York, but every meeting、mm-hmm. I was required to、uh, report to. Diplomats from、uh, South Korea, and no matter what I did,、uh, one side or the other could be, expect to be、uh, somewhat uncomfortable or、mm. unhappy.、Uh, I had to make sure that all my language was precise and、yeah. kept confidential. Were you ever able to get、uh, diplomats from the two Koreas in the same room or the same space at the same time? Eventually, that. Proved to be possible, but it were these were off the record uh, meetings, uh, ah, very casual. And what essentially I discovered was that they were both sides were Koreans, yeah,、uh, linked by same language, same culture, same food, and so forth.、Mm-hmm. It was politics that、uh, separated them, right?、Uh, the discussions that you were having、uh, were they all in relation to the agreed framework and and for example the Cato project and and Yongbyon. Oh, are they actually? They began、uh, with official contacts, such as、uh, that involving implementation, negotiation, so forth.、Mm. But as、uh, time passed and the involvement became more and more intense, we ventured into other topics, such as conditions in North or South Korea and so forth, and began to exchange views on all of that. So it was quite a, a very, very、uh, enlightening experience. So you mean you were actually a kind of a A go between between the two Koreas in their discussions with each other. Yes, on,、uh-huh. on inter-Korean related topics. Exactly. Okay, and and was that that was still in the、uh, period ninety two ninety three? Was it?、Uh, that's right.、Okay. Another role I had to play was between North Korean military and the United States、uh, military when we negotiated、uh, sending U.S. Army back into North Korea to recover the remains of Korean War. Uh, soldiers left behind. Ah, yes.、Uh, we also recently had、uh, retired U.S. Colonel Ash Orms on the podcast, who was、uh, intimately involved in the uh, uh, in that process.、Uh, I don't have the exact number of the episode to hand. But,、uh, yeah, he gave us some、uh, very interesting stories about his time、uh, working on that. You went to the、uh, Yongbyon Nuclear Research Center, didn't you? Ah,、uh, yes.、Yeah. My first visit was in、uh, November 1994, with a U.S. delegation to explore what might be needed to put the spent nuclear fuel in long-term storage. 
Right. Could, can you remind us what was agreed under the agreed framework? What would be happening with Yongbyon? Uh, Yongbyon's nuclear activities were to be completely frozen. Mm-hmm. And the nuclear spent fuel, which could yield plutonium for nuclear weapons, that was to be placed in long-term storage, not reprocessed. Mm. And that was the first step of implementation of the agreed framework. Okay. In exchange for North Korea's cooperation to allow the United States to do so, the United States promised to provide North Korea heavy fuel oil. Right. As far as you know, were you the first American delegation to visit North Korea, uh, to visit Yongbyon Research Center at that time in November 94? Yeah, we, we were the first. Yeah. I was the first U.S. diplomat to go to North Korea. And then the visit to Yongbyon, that was uh, the first by the delegation. I was a member of that group. Yeah, and you went back numerous times over the next years. And you said you even spent sometimes up to a couple of months there. Yes, the longest I could endure was two months. Uh, it was always very, very stressful. Uh, every mm. day brought new challenges and so forth. But uh, uh, yes. Where were you living up there? Did they billet you at the Yongbyon Research Center or were they driving you in from Pyongyang? No, we, uh, the center is located about 100 kilograms or uh, 60 miles north of Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. The road was horrible. So mm. we essentially lived at a guest house at the Nuclear Research Center uh-huh. that was built for International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors. And uh-huh. we shared that facility with them. Ah, okay. So you and the IAEA inspectors were there at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what was that like? What was it like to actually be living there? You you mentioned that it was stressful. Could you tell a little bit more about how or why it was stressful? Well, we lived in a two-story brick structure atop a hill surrounded by brick uh, fence and with guard posts. Mm. We were not allowed to go outside unless we were in a car. I was able to negotiate permission to take a walk outside the compound unaccompanied uh, for about a half mile away uh, mm-hmm. down the road. And also, I wasn't alone. I did speak Korean. I had long experience dealing with Koreans, both North and South Korea. Mm. Most of the Americans who accompanied me had no such experience and tended to lack patience in dealing with the North mm. Koreans. And that led to frequent, almost daily uh, disagreements. Did you have to mediate in these disagreements because you were the only one who could speak Korean? Yes. For example, one time uh, a worker, American worker was in the nuclear research facility getting ready to preparing uh, the equipment for putting the nuclear spent fuel in storage. Mm. Uh, And for some reason, he hit a North Korean worker in the head with a screwdriver. That led to a very unfortunate uh, verbal altercation. Uh, another time. Sorry, do, do you mean that he, he hit the North Korean in the head with a screwdriver accidentally or was this deliberate? Yes, intentionally and uh, caused him to bleed. And you had all the North Koreans, of course, immediately up in arms. And ready oh, yes. to do. So what I had to do was expel the American from North Korea. Right. So that was actually your call to make was to expel the American worker. Yes. Uh, since I was the only U.S. government representative in ah, the country, ah. I decided that was the best solution rather than let the North Korean authorities uh, take control of the person. Right. Well, I, I suppose, well, you were quite fortunate then uh, in retrospect to be able to, or rather he was quite fortunate that he was able to get out under your direction rather than be taken over by the North Korean uh, security officials. Yes. And unfortunately, I had to do that three times to different Americans. Uh, and each time the North Koreans agreed, okay, it's better let the... Uh, person leave the country, ban them from ever returning, yeah. rather than having to go through the process of internment and so forth. How many times did you say that happened? Uh, three, three or four times. At Goodness least me. Where were these people coming from? The, uh, you said that you were the only U.S. government official. Were they private contractors? Yes. For putting this fuel in long-term storage, uh, a group of technicians mm-hmm. uh, were hired for that. They yeah. did have leadership, but the leadership had no sensitivity for the political context of the situation. Wow. Uh, so uh, uh, one young man I had to expel because he 
uh, sexually abused a Russian diplomat's woman. Oh. Uh, that kind, another time, a drunk, uh, one of the drunk technicians at a guest house slammed a can of beer onto a picture of Kim Jong-il that oh. caused quite an uproar. That kind of, uh, in our society, they'd be minor, but the, yeah. given the political atmosphere of North Korea, yeah. each incident could, had the potential to explode. It, it's it's easy to imagine. I mean, I'm sure certainly uh, in the years hence with, um, you know, with, with Americans who have been interned uh, in North Korea and, of course, what happened to poor uh, Otto uh, Warmbier, it's it's yes. impossible to imagine that could ever happen again. You know, that I'm, I imagine that if the U.S. were ever to do anything uh, at Yongbyon in the future, people would be vetted much more strictly in terms of their psychological makeup before being allowed into North Korea, don't you? Oh, definitely. Uh, another incident I almost forgot about was a U.S. Army colonel, mm. really a very sophisticated uh, fellow, West Point graduate. One day he was cleaning up his hotel room and he took a newspaper that had a picture of Kim Jong-il on the front and he put the newspaper in the garbage can. Oh, oh boy. Uh, before I knew it, I had a whole bunch of North angry North Koreans at my door and we negotiated. Uh, and finally, I was able to convinced North Koreans that the colonel had apologized. Actually, he'd apologized to me, not to them. Yeah. But uh, uh, I was able to convince North Koreans otherwise. And we were able to keep the uh, colonel in country to finish our task. Gosh. How did North Koreans speak to you? What did they, uh, what did they call you when speaking Korean? Uh, in Korean, they always uh, referred to me as the American diplomat. Sometimes behind my back, they'd call you a mijenom or American yes. uh, imperialist. But right. after a while, you kind of got in, used to that. <laughs> I see. So did, did they, uh, you know, did they give you the, the title uh, sonseng or or or, uh, or a diplomatic title? Did they just call you a, a wegyoguan? Well, they did call me by a polite title, sonsengnim. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So generally, did you have uh, good and in, uh, positive interactions with the North Koreans? Uh, yes. So overall, it uh, basically what I discovered was if I treated them as Koreans, showed respect for their language, culture, and so forth, mm -hmm. they would reciprocate. And mm -hmm. in doing so, enabled me to do things otherwise not possible. For example, when a North Korean delegation first visited Washington, D.C., I took them on a nighttime tour of uh, Washington monuments. We went to uh, Lincoln Memorial and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and having done that, when I was in Pyongyang, they responded in kind. And I was able to go and see places uh, no other foreigners had uh, seen. So it was a matter of building trust gr gradually, mm. of demonstrating mutual respect and so forth. Wow. Are you able to uh, recall some of those specific places you went to that other foreigners hadn't seen? Uh, yes, I went to quite a few national parks and sites. I went to uh, museums. Uh, one museum was horrendous uh, in Sariwon. It was a, one of the most anti-American museums I'd ever encountered with horrible pictures and diagrams of American alleged atrocities. Uh, there was a number of those uh, cases. Also in visiting Yongbyon, I was able mm -hmm. to take pictures uh, mm -hmm. of facilities nobody had been allowed to take and, and so forth. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's a very famous... Uh museum in Shinchon called the Shinchon Museum of, An sorry, hang on, the Shinchon Anti-American Museum of Atrocities or something like that. Uh, uh, that's that's what I meant. I not Saudi one, but the Shinchon Museum. Ah, okay. Yeah. That took uh, about three months to negotiate the first access. Wow. And now they have it as a, or at least until recently, it was a regular stop on the tourist tour. <laughs> uh, for, for I, I was supposed to go there in 2010, but because of the heavy rains and flooding down there, uh, we were unable to visit. Uh, uh, the, the museum was closed off, but yet it's a, it's, a, it's a tourist trap now. They've, in fact, they've even upgraded it uh, in recent <laughs> years. I was able to almost completely record it on uh, film, and oh. the, the photographs are horrendous, really. Yeah. Uh, now, when you were there, that was in the era before North Korea had cell phones available for foreigners and, and internet. So how did you keep in touch uh, on a regular basis with the U.S. government and, and with colleagues, and even with your family? Well, first of all, State Department told me if I encountered any problems while I was in North Korea, don't call them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Solve the problem for yourself. 
<laughs> so they were really yes. giving you a license to work off the reservation, as it were. Oh, it, it was a very bureaucratic response. So rarely did I call. I, when I made my first visit in December uh, 1992 with Repu Republican Senator Smith of New Hampshire, during that visit, I asked to call Washington, D.C., took a day to arrange the call. It cost $33 a minute. Boy. Uh, thereafter, I sent faxes occasionally on each visit to confirm that I was all right and coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, that cost uh, three, $33 per page. Boy, okay, wow. So most of my contact, uh, there was almost no contact uh, with outside, including uh, Japan and South Korea. Another time, uh, we almost had a rupture of relations between North and South Korea. Yeah. There was a misunderstanding, uh, an exchange of firing that escalated to artillery. And uh, the North Koreans asked me to contact South Korean government and tell them to stand down. No, no war was being planned. And to get to the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, I had to call the U.S. State Department Operations Center. Yes. Which then linked me to the uh, U.S. Embassy in Seoul. The problem was that once I told the Marine Guard who answered the phone that I was in North Korea, he hung up three times. Oh, boy. Finally, I uh, was able to get through and we were able to uh, get the situation stabilized. Wow. So you so you're actually, you know, some some on the ground settling of, of disputes from North Korea to South Korea, but via a hotline in Washington. Yes. Uh huh. Exactly. Gosh. Do you remember when that was? Right now, off the top of my head, I think that was in 1997. Mm. I'd have to check my record, but it was a very, very tense situation. Now, to go back to, uh, to Yongbyon uh, Nuclear Research Center, tell us exactly what actually is Yongbyon and why is it so important to both North Korea and the United States? Well, Yongbyon was the first place where the North Koreans began to develop nuclear fuel initially to fuel a nuclear reactor to produce uh, electricity. Mm -hmm. But then we discovered in 1991, I believe it was, that the North Koreans were building a nuclear reprocessing plant to separate the spent fuel and plutonium. Mm -hmm. And the plutonium had a single use, and that's in nuclear weapons. So that's what triggered the entire crisis and got us uh, involved with uh, Yongbyon. Once we were there, we saw most of the facilities because we had to drive in to the nuclear spent fuel building, mm -hmm. which was right next to the nuclear reactor. Uh, is that dangerous? Pardon? Is, is the proximity of the spent fuel storage place to the actual reactor, is that is that dangerous? I mean, should it normally be further away? Uh, no, they were uh, basically across the street from each other. There was no <laughs> danger there. The only danger was inside the nuclear reactor, which mm -hmm. one time we, they had us walk atop, we had to turn off our Geiger counters because radiation was so strong. Oh. Another time, the nuclear spent fuel be building, the fuel was stored in water, which was highly radioactive. And mm -hmm. we had to limit how much time we spent in the building uh, each day yeah. because of the exposure to radiation. How big is the Yongbyon complex? I would say it's about... Uh, 10 city blocks. It's right, quite large because in addition to the large nuclear reactor, which mm -hmm. is multi-story, mm -hmm. next to it, you have the spent fuel storage building, which is also large, but it's a single story structure. You then have a military barrack. You have a fuel producing building and laboratories and classrooms and so forth, because they also uh, train their nuclear scientists uh, at the site. Mm. And then once they've gone through the basic training at the Nuclear Research Center, they graduate and either go off to Russia or East European countries for further training. And how much of Yongbyon did you get to see? You said you saw most of it. Yes, uh, we never were allowed to go into the uh, fuel producing plant. Mm -hmm. We never did visit the classrooms and so forth. But in terms of the actual nuclear facility, the five megawatt reactor building, we saw all areas of it. Mm -hmm. Spent fuel uh, building, we worked in it uh, daily. So we essentially saw the heart of the operation. Right. But there were parts 
you mentioned specifically the uh, the classrooms and also the fuel producing area and and there were some activities that were hidden or kept from you although yes we there was no way for us to know for example we never visited the reprocessing plant or, mm. or what the north koreans called the radiological laboratory right that we were never allowed to go to the fuel producing plant we were mm -hmm. never allowed to go into did they give a reason for that the only thing i can figure is uh, they didn't they did not allow the iaea to go in there and therefore they did not want us it mm -hmm. was a uh, the research center is considered to be a top secret north korean military facility mm. so nobody could gain access not even north korean diplomats or mm. we had to get special permission and so forth and given the nature of the society everything is secret uh, once it involves uh, yeah. the military we also uh, very extensive defense uh, arrangements uh, especially anti-aircraft uh, ground to air anti-aircraft missiles and so forth mm -hmm. are scattered all across the area i look out from my guest house window look around and you could see flattened hills in the distance where missile sites have been set up those we were mm. never allowed to visit were any of those areas that you were not allowed to visit um, covered under the agreed framework? Uh, no. Uh, whatever we needed in connection with the implementation of the agreed framework, we were allowed access except for the nuclear reprocessing plant. But fortunately, the IAEA did have access there. Ah, so they had access, but you did not. Exactly. Okay. Tell us a bit about the the collaboration or, or yeah, well, the, the collaborative uh, spirit of working together that you you and your team had with the IAEA while together in North Korea? It was a, a very, very positive uh, relationship. We, we lived with the inspectors. We mm -hmm. uh, had dinner and, and drinks every evening, exchanged knowledge of what was going on and so forth. On occasion, we did uh, work together. So I would say overall, I was very impressed by them. They were all uh, culturally sophisticated, well-educated. Uh, they all came from uh, what were then called communist countries as required mm. by IIEA uh, uh, regulations. But there was nothing ideological about them. They tended mm -hmm. to act uh, politically quite neutral and uh, focused on their responsibilities, which meant daily changing monitoring camera film Right. And then reviewing the film for any disallowed activities. Yes. Now, I wonder whether they were having to send any of their technicians home for uh, incidents with North Koreans. I never heard of an incident involving uh, uh, one of them. Yeah. Were they allowing you to, to look at their notes um, from the reprocessing center that they could access, but you were not allowed to? Well, the North made it very, very clear. They did not want any sharing of written material. So we had to do it casually uh, over drinks. Oh. Uh, when, fortunately, the North Koreans did not monitor us. How did they police the no, uh, no passing of written notes then? Given that you were, you were living together in the same building, how, how, how is that even practical? At the end of the day, all the written materials were locked up. Oh, gosh. Wow. Uh, at that time, I mean, given that, it, it does sound a bit, you know, could, you, you were supposed to, under the agreed framework, look at the, the reprocessing things, but weren't able to. So at that time, did you feel that North Korea was sincerely trying to abide by the agreed framework in good faith? Yes, initially, uh, I was convinced of that. So was the IAEA. Mm -hmm. They did allow us, uh, the IAEA allowed us to sit down and look at the monitoring film together to reassure us that the North Koreans were cooperating. Mm -hmm. All the facilities were closely monitored in that regard. But over time, and it began gradually, December mm. 1994, the North Korean army shot down a U.S. Army helicopter that had strayed into North Korea. Mm. Uh, September 1995, uh, a North Korean submarine landed commandos in South Korea. Those kinds of incidents uh, tended uh, That was to... 96. I was there for that one. Okay. Uh, excuse me. Those incidents eroded uh, mm. severely uh, cooperation and yeah. made the North Korean army increasingly suspicious of our presence. When people ask or talk about why or how the agreed framework broke down 
do you i mean is it a simple matter of, of of ascribing the responsibility to one nation or the other no i i i'm very uncomfortable with such a simplistic assessment i've re reviewed my notes and so forth and i think initially mm -hmm. the north korean foreign ministry and other ministries were very committed to implementing the agreed framework mm -hmm. at the same time however the north korean military was firmly opposed Mm. That was not recognized in the United States. The, in the United States, the tendency was to see North Korea as a monolithic whole. I did not see that after working inside the country with different elements of the government. Yeah. So there were two things, I think, generally speaking, that eroded the ability to effectively implement the agreement. The agreement was solid. The problem was implementation. And it began immediately. Once the Republicans took control of the U.S. Congress in uh, November 1994, mm -hmm. there was no financial funding provided by the U.S. government mm. for implementation of the program. Right. Uh, for example, all my trips, I had to borrow money, fund it myself, and then come back and ask for reimbursement from either the Department of Energy or the Department of Defense. Uh, State Department had no funding. Hold on. So, so you were a State Department employee being sent to the DPRK as, uh, you know, and well, maybe not an emissary, but certainly as an employee of the State Department, but you were funding your own trips? Yes, initially. And then I put everything I could on a credit card, except in North Korea, there were no credit cards. You carried cash only. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and then when I came back, presented receipts and so forth, I would get reimbursed, not from the State Department, Right. From uh, usually Department of Energy, which was using funding provided by the Defense Department. So we limped along with implementation. Uh, the other thing, there was no U.S. government funding for the purchase of heavy fuel oil. And yeah. State Department literally had to put hand, hat in hand and go out and, and ask for support from Japan, yeah, European Europe. allies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, by, by 1996, I would say the agreed framework was uh, in serious trouble. Mm. And the uh, reasons were on the North Korean side, uh, opposition by the military for the most part, and growing suspicion of U.S. Uh, in sincerity in other elements of the North Korean government. While in the United States, our Republican control of Congress was clearly undercutting the a regime. South Korea did not help at all. President mm. Kim Jong-sam was firmly opposed. Negotiations between the U.S. and North Korea over the provision of a light water reactor mm -hmm. in North Korea. Uh, South Korea demanded that the reactor had to be a South Korean design, mm. greatly complicated and delayed uh, the negotiation. So from the very beginning, uh, it was the implementation problems in all three countries. Right. Uh, North Korea, South Korea, and the United States that eroded the agreement's effectiveness. I'm curious, Ken, during all your time in North Korea and meeting with North Koreans outside North Korea, when was the first time that any North Korean said to you or actually expressed to you that North Korea was interested in possessing nuclear weapons? That did not come until the Bush administration, uh, Bush 43. I see. At that time, I was a private citizen, but monthly North Koreans would meet with me and we exchanged views. And that's when it became increasingly clear to me, after, especially after President Bush made his speech about access of evil. 20 years ago this month, Ken. Yes. And that's, I think that created consistent a consensus in North Korean government mm -hmm. that the, there was no hope of uh, working with the United States. Once Secretary Rumfeld declared that the United States would no longer cooperate with the recovery remains in North Korea, that convinced not just the North Korean military, mm -hmm. but uh, all elements of North Korean government that there was no hope for implementation of the agreed framework, which uh, essentially reinforced the suspicion that the United States might attack North Korea. And thus, mm. there is a new consensus in North Korea that the best way to deal with U.S. threat was 
a nuclear deterrence capability. And wasn't that also around the same time that Robert Kelly made his visit to North Korea with the allegations of, uh, what do they call it, not enhancing uh, uranium, uh, enriching uranium? Yes, those allegations went on for, uh, from the very beginning. And for the most part, the IAEA repeatedly said no such thing was going on. Mm. Uh, but certainly by 2002, 2003, again, under the Bush administration, there was a, a broad conviction in the United States that the North Koreans could be, not be trusted. Mm. Now, Yongbyon always makes an appearance in talks between North Korea and the US, whether it's the six-party talks or, or more recently. Uh, the Americans feel that they have reached agreements with North Korea to close it down. And so when Kim Jong-un put it forward as an offer at Hanoi in 2019, it was not seen as being a significant thing. In fact, when I talk about Yongbyon, uh, I often hear or read this US proverb, don't buy the same horse twice. Is that a fair proverb to use here? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I'm not acquainted with the saying uh, or the context for that, but uh, I have no reason to agree with it. So some other US uh, folks that I've talked to say that Yongbyon is so big and has so many disparate constituent parts that if North Korea agrees to shut down one part of Yongbyon, it isn't the same as saying that it's willing to dismantle the whole complex. Based on what you've seen, does that make sense? Uh, no, it doesn't. I, uh, over the years, the, the five megawatt reactor was to be uh, removed and so forth. The only mm -hmm. way for uh, effectively ending the North Korean nuclear program would be to dismantle the entire facility, mm. all of its supporting activities and so forth. At the same time, the other suspicion in the United States was that the North Koreans had uh, secret underground facilities mm. to take the place of Yongbyon. But the, the fact that North Koreans still rely on Yongbyon uh, as their primary nuclear research center tends to argue against that. I can't mm. prove it, but on the other hand, there's no evidence to support there is an alternate number of nuclear research sites. Would it be, I mean, I'm not a nuclear expert, would it be physically possible to have a nuclear reactor, a nuclear research site underground, fully underground? Uh, yes, it would be incredibly uh, difficult. Mm -hmm. The problem would be building the facility main yeah. and making it invisible from the air. Yeah. Now, you were not present in Hanoi in 2019 at uh, President Trump and Chairman Kim's last summit. But from what you have read and heard, was what North Korea offered at that summit in relation to Yongbyon the same as what it had offered before in, for example, the six-party talks, or was it in any way substantially different? It was essentially the same. The North Korean foreign minister at the time, whom I got to know quite well, he essentially repeated the essence of the agreed framework to Trump. Uh-huh. In that case, I mean, if, if it's essentially the same as the agreed framework, then I can understand how some elements of the U.S. government would feel that they're buying the same horse twice, meaning that you know, they're, they're uh, negotiating for exactly the same thing once it's already been agreed upon. Yes. And uh, that, well, that's very, very uh, true. The problem, though, is that nobody completely purchased the, uh, the first time around. Right. Um, it never went to the deal simply uh, fell apart. Uh huh. Do you think that North Korea would ever negotiate away its nuclear weapons? No, I'm convinced now that mm -hmm. North Korean suspicions of the United States has created conviction in their government that the only way to defend themselves is by maintaining a nuclear deterrence. And that's precisely why they continue to uh, expand their missile capabilities. I think, it, I think the, the, the horse is out of the barn. Mm. And, uh, it, it's very frustrating to watch the situation, but Yes, I, I do not see any future deal coming uh, regarding dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program. Is there anything that convinces you that the American government, that the U.S. Congress could reach a point where they're able to accept either tacitly or formally that North Korea is a nuclear armed state? I would think that's the, uh, the only realistic avenue open to us. Uh, but unfortunately, 
it's not just the United States government, it's also the South Korean government, mm. uh, which must prove to, of such a situation. Right. Uh, likewise, the Japanese. And one of the problems with the six-party talks was that we could never get Japan, South Korea, the United States all on the same uh, path. Yeah. And I think that situation could very much persist mm. uh, if, say, one of those three parties decided to recognize North Korea as a nuclear power. Now, you uh, mentioned earlier briefly that after leaving government service as a private citizen from 2002 to 2006, so uh, during the, the first and, and part of the second term of uh, President George W. Bush, you conducted monthly private meetings with DPRK officials at North Korea's uh, mission to the UN uh, in New York. Uh, I visited New York City uh, two years ago uh, this month and tried to make my acquaintance with that same permanent mission to the United Nations. Sadly, I could not get past the guard uh, at the building entrance. I did leave my business card, but they didn't call back. Uh, so do tell us something about the lives of, of North Korean diplomats in the USA. Very good question. They tended to live in apartments and keep primarily to themselves. They did have access to impressive fleet of cars mm -hmm. and traveled freely within 90, uh, 90 mile radius of Manhattan Island. Mm. But beyond that, rarely did they venture. They, they had access, to, open access to television. Their children loved American cartoons. Mm. And did um, they go to school? Yes, they went to regular American schools. And I did uh, at one point uh, arrange for a, the daughter of a North Korean diplomat to Columbia University. Uh, unfortunately, once the home government discovered that uh, she was ordered back, so uh. it was very. They li lived a very restricted life, but mm. relative to life in North Korea, uh, living in a foreign country was certainly uh, preferable. Yes. Now, of course, the um, the U.S. and North Korea have never had diplomatic relations, so there's no embassy uh, in Washington. So the uh, the diplomats at the permanent mission to the UN are the only North Korean diplomats in the United Nations. Does that mean that they were a kind of de facto embassy to America, even while not being that, you know, uh, on paper? Uh, yes. I initially, no contact was uh, allowed between North Korean diplomats and Americans until I met with the North Korean foreign minister in New York in September 1992. Thereafter, mm. I was authorized to be the so-called liaison channel. And all U.S correspondence, usually, usually my telephone calls are faxed to New York. And that gradually developed into uh, diplomatic exchanges, quite mm -hmm. extensive. But still, even today, that has not gone beyond, beyond e email exchanges, fax exchanges, and occasional telephone calls. But they are the de facto North Korean embassy in the United States. I have a, a vague memory of reading about something referred to lightheartedly as orange juice diplomacy in New York. Is that, was that you? Yes. In June 1992, uh, no, excuse me, in June 1993, when U.S.-North Korea nuclear negotiations began, after three or four days, they broke down. Uh, Bob Gallucci told U.S delegation to go back to Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and if the North Koreans wanted to reopen the talks, to call me. Ah. Uh, they did that on Monday. was sent up to New York to meet with the person who eventually became uh, North Korea's foreign minister, Lee Yong-ho. Ah. We sat down in a place that South Korean journalists would never think of us going to, a bagel shop on 42nd Street. Oh, yeah. And there... Without permission from the Secretary of State, I purchased orange juice and bagels for the North Koreans, and we negotiated an understanding over a three-day period that allowed the talks to resume. No, I, I think I actually uh, had a bagel at that exact bagel shop there, uh, very close to the, uh, uh, the North Korean mission. Is that right? Yes. Well, actually, it's across the street from the old Helmsley Hotel, which I don't know if it's still there. Mm. So, and I, I went back in the... The bagel shop is now converted into a, another fast food uh, facility. But oh, okay. at that time, it was a, you know, a small sliver of a, a shop with yeah. a few seats. 
Now, how many, roughly, uh, how many diplomats would the uh, mission to the UN have? Are we talking, you know, five or 10? It would be around 20. Oh, that's quite large then. Yes. And uh, many of them, I would say, have have the title of uh, ambassador. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a very clear hierarchy. And the others would be supporting staff, drivers, mm. and so forth. Now, since COVID began two years ago, North Korean diplomats presumably have not been able to visit or return home, nor have those in New York City been replaced by new arrivals. Uh, how do you imagine they keep busy and remain ideologically centered and loyal? That is an excellent question, and it's something I could never for the life of me figure out, except for the fact that in most cases, their families are kept in Pyongyang mm. and they travel abroad without their families now. Yeah. And that's a very strong inducement to uh, avoid any unacceptable political activity. Right. Were you ever able to, to guess which one or, or more of the, of the team was from the uh, state security apparatus? Yes. Uh -huh. Was that openly stated or you, you just kind of guessed based on his bearing or, or his manner? Every negotiating session, we had one person uh -huh. on the North Korean delegation whose ministry was not identified. Ah, that, that makes it a little bit obvious, doesn't it? Yes, it did. Now, that ended, you know, your period of monthly private meetings ended back in 2006. Do you no longer have any connection with the uh, mission to the UN in New York? Uh, no, all the North Korean diplomats I knew have uh, gone back home. At least one or two have been executed. Gotcha. Uh, so, do, do you know uh, what for? Uh, not clear to me. No. Mm. Gee. I, what I I can say is that those North Korean diplomats who were engaged in the agreed framework negotiations and so forth mm -hmm. uh, were professional diplomats and a very impressive, well-educated, articulate group of uh, people whose views were certainly much more flexible than those of either the Ministry of Internal Security uh, and the military and so forth. Uh, but over the years, their influence has disappeared. The entire group uh, has either passed away or gone into retirement. But uh, Ri Yong-ho, whom you, you mentioned, uh, um, later became foreign minister. Do you include him in that, that group of, uh, of people? Yes, I mean, definitely. His, his father had been a correspondent at the uh, Armistice talks back in 1953. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very well read. He had permission to subscribe to Time and other U.S. Uh, periodicals, which he received from the North Korean mission in uh, Beijing. Yeah. And so, yes, uh, you could sit down with him. His English was perfect. Actually, the United Nations enrolled him in a uh, seminar, mm. which got him into the Department of State in 1991 for a briefing there. So he is quite an astute fellow. So to, to give or to receive a briefing? To receive a briefing. Ah. When, asked, when asked at the United Nations uh, where he was from, he said Korea. Ah, ha, ha. And they assumed, oh, it must be South Korea. Yeah, right. And, uh, yes. Gosh. After returning to the academic world, you visited the DPRK as a tourist making, I believe, your final visit in 2010. Is that right? Correct, yes. Which month was that? If I recall correctly, it was in uh, October. Okay, that was two months um, after my own first visit to Pyongyang. I was there uh, for Liberation Day, so around August 15th of 2010. Uh, and at that time, uh, Kim Jong-un had not yet been made public to the world. He, that came about six weeks later in late September, I believe. So by the time you were there in October 2010, uh, Kim Jong-un and his status as uh, uh, son of Kim Jong-il and, and handpicked successor was well and truly made known. So tell us about that last trip. What sense did you get of the changes that North Korea had undergone and was also undergoing at that time? Uh, yes, I had maintained a photographic record over the years. And uh, the best I can recall is that physically Pyongyang had more traffic mm. that the Many buildings had been renovated or there were new buildings. Uh, restaurants had reopened. I was initially there during the famine when there were no restaurants open. Yeah. The, uh, so those types of activities, normal activities, were uh, very, very common. I did travel outside the city 
went up to Myohyangsan National Park, about 160 kilometers north of Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. The rice fields and so forth had greatly improved in terms of harvest. Uh, they had just finished the rice harvest, and you could see that. Nothing, however, had improved in the countryside in the way of housing, transportation. People still looked uh, extremely impoverished, poorly dressed, poorly fed. Mm. Pyongyang, everybody appeared to be much better fed, clothed, and so forth. I was allowed to take about 20 hours of video uh, of wherever I wanted to. That was also a major change. Up yeah. until then, uh, I was only allowed to take still photographs. To go back to the 1990s for a moment there, you were there during the famine. What parts, what were you, what signs of the famine were you able to see? Uh, well, at that time, first I was there in uh, September, October 1995, 1996, uh, working out of uh, Yongbyon in 1995. That meant we had to travel, uh, we often traveled weekends to San, about 50 miles away, mm -hmm. uh, which gave us uh, a visual access to the countryside. Yeah. Uh, then after that, in 1996, we began the U.S.-North Korea joint recovery operations. Uh, again, working in uh, an area about 130, 140 kilometers north of Pyongyang. Then that's when we saw dead bodies piled up at uh, intersections awaiting a pickup. Oh. We saw walking skeletons, uh, even in Pyongyang. One morning I got up and I used to take a walk and I saw a young girl obviously starving to death. Some guy grabbed her because uh, he saw me. Yeah. He took her behind a, a building. I followed them and he, he beat, beat her up pretty good. So it oh. was very, very uh, traumatic situation, I must say. Gee. What did North Koreans tell you at that time uh, was going on in the country? Uh, that was fascinating. I've been reviewing my notes. I have about 40 notebooks I maintained. I kept a, a private notebook always uh, on me, mm. and then a public notebook, which I left on my desk wherever yeah. I was, so the North Koreans uh, could read it. Uh, and according to the private ones, the North Koreans recognized that their government had made uh, substantial, significant errors in mm. terms of cultivation. I took uh, foreign agriculture experts, uh, Oregon State agriculture experts into the country. We traveled broadly, and that gave us the access to North Korean farmers across the board. And all of them either refused to comment or they commented very negatively mm. about the situation. They did so always on a private basis. One time, uh, uh, several times, actually, uh, my so-called guides, these uh, North Koreans always accompanied you, Sure. take me out, in, out of the car into the field or someplace and talk very candidly. Mm. Out of the car. Is that because there could have been listening devices in the car, you think? Well, all, uh, all dr cars were driven by military personnel. And ah. We could, had to assume that they, would, uh, they were monitoring our conversation. Right. Uh, so you were getting a, a, a franker picture uh, off the books uh, than you were uh, officially. Oh, definitely. It's amazing what uh, people told me at that time. Yeah. They were very much frustrated with the government. They strongly criticized Kim Jong-il. Uh, they simply didn't hold back as long as they trusted mm -hmm. that you would not make it public. So right. I never... This is the first time I'm talking about these things, but Goodness. it's for, fortunately many years afterward. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you went back in, in 2010, you know, of course, that's now you know, 15 years after the period of the famine that you saw um, and close to the end of uh, Kim Jong-il's period. And, and you know, Kim Jong-un had been announced. So did you get a sense that North Korea was entering a new period at the time, that there was a, a different feeling? There was a hope. First of all, people were surprised that it was not Kim Jong-il's first son, but his second son. Mm. And there was the assumption that because the second son had lived and studied in Switzerland, he would have a very different outlook on life. It was 
common view, not just in South Korea, but also in North Korea. But nobody was certain about the future. I would say that people simply had no awareness uh, who might be uh, considered as a successor if you were in North Korea. Yeah. Now, in early 2004, you published, uh, together with Joseph Traggett, a book entitled The Complete Idiot's Guide to Understanding North Korea. Yes. From what you have observed of the U.S. administration since then, George W. Bush's second administration, the eight years of Barack Obama and four years under Donald Trump, does it appear if the people in charge of dealing and negotiating with North Korea for those administrations read and learned lessons that your book sought to impart? Unfortunately, uh, no. I would say particularly during the Trump administration. Well, first, let me go back to the Obama administration. Sure. His whole approach of strategic patience Mm -hmm. uh, was nothing but a political uh, ploy to avoid, to minimize criticism of the administration because uh, such criticism was very, very strong in the Defense Department. Mm. So it accomplished uh, nothing. On the other hand, it was realistic in that uh, at the time, Japan under Abe Mm -hmm. was not going to move positively Mm. uh, with North Korea. And South Korea continued to vacillate from one extreme to the other. Then we get into the Trump administration. That was a disaster. Mm. Trump gave away everything that the United States since the Korean War had attempted to use as incentives, inducements for North Korea to become a uh, accepted member of the international community. We strongly opposed any such recognition of the regime and so forth. Uh, Trump just gave it away without anything in return. Based on my uh, experience with North Korea, that's exactly what the North Koreans want. But is it? Is there nothing to be said for um, after, you know, 70 years after the, the, the pause that effectively ended the Korean War, that, it, you know, it may be time to, to recognize the government of North Korea as being the government of a country and to negotiate with it in the same way that the United States does with, say, uh, other countries that it, it has disagreements with, like Russia or China um, or Turkey or even Saudi Arabia? Yes, but I would say that The only way to present such a package and achieve some success with North Korea is to recognize that North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons, that it is uh, determined to maintain a nuclear deterrence as long as it feels threatened. I would agree it is time for the United States to engage North Korea diplomatically and commercially. But to achieve that, the United States needs to sit down and go through a negotiating process rather than have the United States president unilaterally announce Mm -hmm. what he he, uh, wants to do with North Korea. Why? Because when you negotiate with North Korea, you also have to negotiate with South Korea and Japan. Mm. And they have to be included, not in the negotiations, but in the process of achieving agreement. But as you mentioned earlier, it can be very difficult, as it was during the uh, six-party talks, to get the United States, Japan, and South Korea on the same page at the same time. Uh, And and maybe, uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump's uh, approach was the one that was called for at the time, was to uh, to sort of, you know, lead and and then let South Korea and Japan follow, which it seemed like they were inclined to do. Oh, well, no, I I have no awareness of. This particularly Japan following the United States, because for Japan, the priority was always under Abe, it was mm-hmm. to get the so called uh, the kidnapped yeah, the uh, Japanese citizens released from North Korea. Mm. And the United States, uh, Trump simply, I don't think, understood that whole issue. Mm. So it is very complicated. We did accomplish that to achieve the agreed framework. Mm-hmm. And every time Gallucci negotiated with the North Koreans. We first sat down with the South Koreans. The Japanese were on board. They never questioned us. They mm. just uh, supported us. So it is possible, but you need to sit down and carefully craft mm. a strategy and a plan before you just give the North Koreans what they want. And that's precise. 
all I believe Trump wanted was to get the Nobel Peace Prize, and thinking that he gave the North Koreans everything they want, including chocolate cake, and they would roll over and uh, get rid of their nuclear weapons. That's simply unrealistic. Uh, last year, I interviewed um, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster on the uh, on the, this podcast, uh, and he, in his book, and also on the podcast, described uh, how he met with the um, uh, security advisors from both Japan and South Korea at various times, and and had them on board. It, it sounded uh, much more positive than the way you're describing it. Well, that may well have been the case, but Abe and his regime, to the best of my knowledge, was mm. never on board. Again, their priority was the first priority was getting the return uh, release mm -hmm. of the Japanese citizens. And, you know, unfortunately, Ma uh, McMaster shares many of the views uh, long held in the Department of Defense. And that is that North Korea is an aggressive nation by nature. And two, that the United States has to defeat the country and disarm it. And that's simply unrealistic. You, no nation in history has ever voluntarily disarmed itself. So I think there's a strong element of uh, excessive expectation. And one of the problems is the Defense Department does harbor expectations, and they tend to collide with the State Department and mm -hmm. other elements of the US government that makes it difficult to achieve a consensus even within our own government. Do you feel your book after 18 years could do with a substantial update or is the reality that you described then still essentially the same? No, it does need to be updated. I'm thinking about doing it. And uh, instead of relying upon open history incorporated into the text, some of the materials I have written over the years that would mm -hmm. be a more candid explanation of uh, North Korean and US activities. Oh, more from your private notebooks, in other words. Yes. Okay, well, that does sound promising. Because at the time I published that book, I was still under 20-year uh, limit. Ah. What I could make uh, public, I'm now free of that. Yeah. You've been studying uh, East Asia in one way or another since 1963. That'll be 60 years next year. What's the, the top two things that successive U.S. governments keep getting wrong about North Korea? First of all, that... It is an aggressive nation. I would say it was aggressive until the 1980s when the balance of power on the Korean Peninsula reversed and uh, South Korea became uh, the superior power militarily and economically. I don't think the United States government has fully recognized that. Is there any U.S. administration since that of Bill Clinton that you thought was closer to actually making a substantial breakthrough with North Korea than others? Yes, I think the Clinton administration uh, did uh, come very, very close to making a, a breakthrough. Mm, no, I mean, after that. Uh, after that, no. Mm. Uh, certainly, the Bush administration reversed the entire process. The Obama administration uh, put everything on hold, and the Trump administration accomplished nothing. It only raised North Korea's expectations that they could get whatever they wanted without giving anything away. Do you have any hope that the U.S. and DPRK will ever make that breakthrough and normalize relations and work things out? Well, I do retain that uh, hope. And in my mind, the only way to accomplish that is through what I call engagement, diplomatic commercial engagement. Uh, you engage North Korea, you draw them into the international community, you convince them that we're not going to attack them. They can keep their nuclear weapons, but they're useless, expensive. Otherwise, as it now stands, without any engagement or something, there is no ability of anybody in either government to discuss uh, problems and solutions. And I think as long as we have the lack of such engagement, there is no possibility of a solution. We engaged China after a long period of isolating ourselves from them and that proved positive development. China is a problem now, but at least we know what's going on there and we have some ability, some leverage, and the international community has some leverage to restrain North, uh, China's aggressive impulses, let's say. In North Korea, there's nothing to encourage them to restrain themselves. Is engagement with North Korea possible while the current regimes of sanctions are in place? No, 
we would have to phase those out, not drop them entirely. But mm -hmm. again, you'd have to go what the North Koreans came up with again, which uh, actually the United States also developed in the Greed framework. That's a step-by-step -step, uh, process mm. for each step. Uh, somebody gives up something the other side uh, does not like and gradually work toward common ground and cooperation. With possible snapbacks if, uh, if agreement is not followed through on? Yes, that has to be expected. Uh, mm. No such process is ever going to be perfect. It's very complicated. You're working with multiple audiences. Mm -hmm. So somebody has to take the long view that goes beyond a single presidential administration. Mm. Okay, well, that, that is where we're going to have to leave it today. Thank you once again, Professor Kenneth Quinones, for coming on the podcast. No, thank you very much for having me. Uh, listeners, you can find Kenneth Quinones' latest book, uh, Imperial Japan's Allied Prisoners of War in the S uh, South Pacific at all good bookstores, as well as his older works, such as The Complete Idiot's Guide to Understanding North Korea. Uh, don't forget, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening again next time. <laughs>